Hi, everyone. Welcome to Framework Leadership, a podcast about principles and ideas you can use today to take your leadership to the next level. I'm your host, Kent Ingle, president of Southeastern University. And I'm your co-host, Michael Steiner, SU Chief of Staff. And wow, we are excited today to introduce our guest for today's show, Kristen Wagner. Kristen serves as the general counsel with Alliance for Defending Freedom, the largest organization committed to protecting free speech, religious freedom, parental rights, the sanctity of life. Kristen has extensive experience in civil litigation, employment, education, nonprofit constitutional law. She is a sought-after national speaker and frequent legal commentator in television, radio, print media. Kristen, it's an honor to have you join us on today's show. Well, thank you. It's my honor to be here. As we as we start the conversation, uh, right off the bat, tell us um, what was the moment you first discovered your passion uh, for working in the judicial system, participating and shaping the legal scan- uh, landscape? Well, I have to go back a ways for that. Um, I'm celebrating my 50th year this year in September, and I'd have to go all the way back to about age 12. Um, So that's when I first felt that. I came from a a family where my dad was a public school teacher, moved into Christian schools, became a, a pastor, and just had such a formative role in my life, telling me that God had something for my life, that I needed to find out what that vocational calling was and to pursue it. And there were no lawyers in our family, but um, for some reason that just, it just struck in me. And when I was at church camp, uh, when I was 12 years old, that's when I first felt like I needed to pursue law and that that's what God had for my life. Yeah. Now from 12, right at church camp, pursuing law to now um, you know, litigating in front of the Supreme Court. Tell us about that journey. Like, what were some of the things that you had to go through? How did you learn, you know, okay, I'm going to practice law, but now I'm going to end up shaping the legal landscape. What was that like? I think it's just walking through the doors that God opens. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really what it's been for me. I didn't, because I didn't have lawyers in my family, I didn't follow a natural path for that. I didn't go to, you know, what some would say would be the Ivy League schools that Mm -hmm. opens the door for, you know, Supreme Court clerkships or this or that, or, you know, most of the justices are, you know, from Yale um, and those kinds of institutions. But because I had that calling in my life, I knew I wanted to pursue a Christian education. And um, so I went to a Christian university and I went to a Christian law school. And I think that God honored that in my life because it helped shape that vision for me. It mm. helped me understand the law in a way that I never, that, that my colleagues didn't. Right. You know, looking at how do the scriptures apply? What do they mean? What is the common law? What are, what are principle, real, what does real justice look like? And so then it was just a matter of asking God to open the doors. So I believe he opens those doors and it doesn't matter what's, where you go, if he has a plan for your life, yeah. He's going to redeem that. And I think a lot of students, you know, they're they're in similar situations like you where they or, or like you were at the beginning of your career where they were um, they know what they want to do, they know what they want to get there, but then it doesn't happen right away, right? It does, like right after college you have to do smaller jobs work. Talk to us a little bit about what does it mean to have that patience, that to just keep plotting and keep walking through those doors as they open. Well, again, I, I think I take it back to the Christian education that I received um, because I, I just I can't imagine who I would be without it mm-hmm. and how formative it was in my view of my destiny and, mm-hmm. and where God had brought me to and His providence in my life. And I think that's the foundation for all of it. In terms of you know, waiting for him to do things. Um, I had great hopes. I someday wanted to argue before the Supreme Court. That was always a dream. I, d- I don't know of many lawyers that don't have that dream. Right. <laughs> um, but in terms of how it played out, 
you know, I remember being in a crisis shortly after I graduated from law school because I had applied to all of these public interest firms. Well, I shouldn't say all of them because there weren't that many, but there were about five. And none of them wanted me. And in that time, it was, you know, it was the 90s. I didn't really feel like I necessarily fit. Mm. I was a woman. Um, I had a different background. It just, mm. I, I just didn't fit. I'm, I'm a small woman, <laughs> uh, you know, all of these things. And so I went to a private firm and I just thought, God, what are you doing? This isn't, I thought I was going into law to defend religious freedom and mm. now I'm going to a private firm. Yeah. And I went to my pastor and he shared the story of Paul and how Paul was called to share the gospel, but God didn't ever tell him exactly the path and where to go and when and how to travel by boat, by, you know, all of those things. He he let Paul play that out. And so I believe that where I'm at now is a direct result of going mm. into private practice. Um, it is a direct result of learning things in private practice that are helping me in the job I'm in today. Yeah. And so I just know God, God has his hand. And even if you don't see when you're on one page of your life story book, what the next chapter is, it's going to build. Mm. And I truly believe that. Wow. You mentioned the the dream of arguing before the Supreme Court of the United States, and you have been able to do that twice and are about to do that a third time this coming fall. What's that like walking into that room and facing all nine of those justices? Mm -hmm. Does it get a little intimidating? or I mean, are you just... I'm a pro at this. I can do this. <laughs> I think if you come in like that, I mean, there's there's one guy that I think comes in like that and has the right to, and that's Paul Clement. Okay. He's argued over a hundred times. Wow. Um, he is a master and really a colleague, it seems, of the court. Um, I'm not a colleague of the court. So, um, you know, if you're not feeling those butterflies, you're not taking it as serious sure. as you should. I have so much respect for the members of the court, the quality um, the of research that they do, the preparation for these cases, um, the way that they think about things in terms of how it will affect the the whole nation mm. and the principles involved. So it takes a lot of practice um, yeah. to to get ready for that and and thought and a whole team that's behind you. Well, and I think a lot of people they view, especially the Supreme Court justices, as like literal bags of ideology. Like they don't mm. see like the people side of that. Can you speak a little bit of what that's been like interacting with like? the humans that are the Supreme Court justice on that side. I heard a, a Fifth Circuit judge speak not too long ago, and, one of the, and he, he writes a number of great decisions, um, but that would really rile some people on the progressive left side of things, um, such as like Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided. He, he wrote a dissent in a, in a, well, it was actually a concurrence in a case. And he said, you know, it doesn't matter what level you're at, no one likes to be booed. Mm. And that really has stuck with me. Um, I don't like to be booed, but judges don't like to be booed either. And so I do think that there's a human side. These, the justices want to know that what they're doing is good, that right. it's helpful, and that they're doing their best. And they, they don't see themselves as partisan politicians or ideologues, and I think their decisions demonstrate that they're not. Mm. Um, you know, what most people don't know, even in this last term, the way that the justices line up on decisions, there is significant unanimity in the majority of decisions where there is, it's not a five to four or a six to three vote. It's a seven to two, an eight to one, a nine to zero. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of things they agree on, and I think that's important to remember. Yeah. yeah. You talked a little bit about journey, um, you know, when it when you, you look at your dreams and your passions and your calling. Uh, we're, we're taping this on graduation day here. A commencement is going to happen here at Southeastern University. And a lot of our, a lot of our recent graduates and, and, of course, even upcoming graduates will 
as they journey out, um, they're going to face the day-to-day struggles with certain expectations of success. Uh, what advice would you give to these young adults who are just starting to get their foot in the door and take on new opportunities? Work hard. Diligence um, is, there's just no substitute for it. I think that having an initiative, I always want to have team members that I hold back, not that I push forward. Mm. Um, And obviously, I want to push forward when I need to, but you want people that are invested in the work that God's given them. And you you know what the scripture says about being trustworthy with the small things leads to being trustworthy with the big things. But I think that's the first thing. It's just so many times I I think we can maybe use our faith or even use a call that we feel that God has placed on our life um, as sort of a substitute for the pursuit of excellence. Mm -hmm. You may have the call, but part of that call is to live a life of excellence Mm -hmm. and to really strive to be excellent in all that you're doing. So Mm -hmm. I think um, the early bird gets the worm and that's what I would, the best advice I could give and care about people. Yeah, You know, there's so many people are willing to, kick the people under them while they're kissing the people above them. Sure. That's wrong. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's good. And what I love about your story in particular is you went, like you said, you went into private law. And if I remember right, you were working with nonprofits, but churches, like helping them through different things like that. How did that work specifically help prepare you? I mean, you said, I always felt like I wanted to defend religious freedom. Nobody accepted you in the public square. Now you're working with churches. They're in and out, all the different kind of things like that. How did that experience shape and prepare you for what you're doing now? After I graduated from law school, I had a one-year judicial clerkship at the Washington Supreme Court, and then I went to my firm. And um, the calling that I felt God had given me was to defend religious liberty and to train the next generation. And for me, it was it was so clear that I actually wrote it down when I was 12. I wow. still have it in my home office, and, and I still read it quite often just to try to make sure I'm holding myself accountable sure. um, and not off track. And so as I as that call became, you know, kind came to fruition at the private firm, the very first case I had was a religious liberty case, mm. which is very weird. Yeah. You would never expect yeah. that in a private firm. It was essentially a pastor who um, he was he received a confession, and it was from someone who he had never didn't go to his church, but was suffering in that moment, and the state was trying to force him to say what the confession was, even though it could get that evidence from other places. So the issue that went to the Washington Supreme Court was whether you had to only give confessions in the sacrament of like the Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. um, and whether if you chose to give a confession that was outside of that sacrament in the Catholic Church, you would still have the penitent privilege, Mm -hmm. which hopefully your students have learned about who are going into ministry. And because of the experience I had at the Washington Supreme Court, my firm allowed me to write the briefs in that case with a partner. And I was totally unqualified, right? But again, it just shows how one door opens another. You get that experience that you didn't know how God would use, and you see how He uses it. The last thing I'll say is when you deal with religious organizations, you're going to be dealing with constitutional issues Mm -hmm. because the government and the church, you know, the government usually wants to come in and tell the church what to do. So I started to have those interactions and had a number of cases in private practice that involve constitutional issues. Yeah. Now this, you know, when we're talking about um, integration of faith and leadership and and learning, 
uh, it's something that we encourage uh, definitely here at Southeastern University with our, our students. In fact, it's one of our, I mean, it's our core value uh, in many ways. How have you incorporated your testimony and incorporated your personal faith in your career without being biased? You know, in, in cases like the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Rights uh, Commission, how, how, is that, uh, how, how have you handled that, navigated that? I think it's important to realize who you need to talk to in those types of cases and who your audiences are um, and talk in a way that is clear about why you're taking the stand that you're taking and what really the principles are at stake because the storytelling of it is, is everything in today's culture. And it's not storytelling in terms of fabrication, but it's explaining context. People mm. want to know context. They want to know that it's the right thing to do. In a case like Masterpiece Cake Shop, what was critical to say in every interview and really be open and stressed in our brief was Jack Phillips serves everyone. Anyone who walks in his shop, he's happy to serve and loves it. In fact, you, I mean, there are so many stories I could tell you of just the diversity of people that come in that shop, but he doesn't express every message. So the decision of an artist, of a speaker, someone like Jack is not based on who's requesting the message. It's based on what the message is. Mm. And everybody wants that right. Right, right. You know, whether I've seen a number of those who, um, you know, have very different worldviews than what Jack Phillips would have, have come and said, I support Jack Phillips. I support Lori Smith and 303 Creative. I support Baronelle Stutzman and Arlene's Flowers because I want those rights myself. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have to, as a photographer, you know, who's uh, pro abortion, go have to film the March photograph the March for Life rally. Right. I shouldn't have to, as an LGBT web designer, have to promote uh, something that, that differs with my worldview or what I want for the Catholic right. Church. Right. And so we all sink or swim together. Sure. And that's the message that I think is important yeah. in these things. Yeah. So when you're thinking about free speech as a, as a concept in general, you know, we're uh, when we're recording this, it'll probably come live a little bit later, but you, we're dealing with this whole thing with Elon Musk buying Twitter as a, as a move to protect free speech. What is the public sector's role in protecting free speech? What does that look like? What is the responsibility of you know us to protect somebody else's right to have free speech? How does that look? We have to protect free speech on the government side from government censorship. We have to, because if you, if the government controls what you can think, what you can believe and what you can say, that's tyranny. Mm -hmm. That's a totalitarian regime. That's what sets us apart Mm -hmm. from China, from what's happening in Shanghai, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Russia, North Korea, and we're the standard bearer for the world for that. So it's critical that we, we stop government censorship, which is one of the reasons why ADF litigates more cases for public school students and university campuses than anywhere else. Because even though the law is really quite clear in this area, it's a constant battle to say, no, you cannot do that. Conservative and religious ideas have a place on a public campus. What you're talking about is also though this sense of corporate censorship. Mm -hmm. And the First Amendment doesn't apply to private corporations, nor should it. So we wanna be principled in that. There are some solutions that are being batted around in the public mm-hmm. square that deserve you know, to, to be considered. But I also will say what we can do as people is cultivate a culture of free speech. Okay. So 
demonstrate why is it important that we are able to exchange different viewpoints. Why is debate important? How does it further social progress? How does it further our mm. ability to explore truth and to have advancements? And what happens when you censor ideas you don't want? That's the culture of free speech mm. as opposed to the law that requires free speech. And we're, we're not doing real well in that area right yeah. now. So if you were going to give some advice to Elon as he's like working and like changing and adjusting, what would you say would be some like key ideas to think about for running something like Twitter? I love Twitter. <laughs> uh, I mean, I used to love Twitter. I, I, like many others, have recently contemplated, I should just get off here. This is a cesspool. Yeah. Um, I, people are so mean on it. Yeah. I would advise Elon Musk that people can still be mean. True. Sure. Mm. But to foster a culture of free speech. Mm. And to do that, you don't censor or shadow ban people. You allow ideas to come out into the public square. Um, and the market takes care of bad, bad ideas. Yes. The market takes care of bad speech. Um, you know, we talk about this cancel culture, you know, mob or whatever, mm -hmm. and, and obviously I'm against it. Um, I've seen it. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it, it's a character flaw more yeah. than anything. But I do think that if you're going to exhibit speech that is just terrible and hostile in nature, you will reap the consequences yeah. for it. Yeah. And yeah. speaking of, of hostility, with your pursuit of um, religious freedom, clearly you've been the subject. Uh, you've been subject to, to a backlash in the public eye for uh, some of your beliefs. How, how do you combat those responses? Um, how do you stand firm to demonstrate? compassion and care, but yet you've got to be firm on your faith. More and more, I have recognized the importance of the scripture. Mm. Um, and just if I don't have that time every day, that peace that passes all understanding isn't quite as strong in that moment. And yeah. so, so I think as I've grown older, my devotional life and my spiritual life has become even more, and my prayer life has become even more important. Yeah. I think a second thing is um, just when you have those moments and you're trying to ask the Holy Spirit for discernment to know what is right from wrong, the Holy Spirit also gives you a love for people. Right. And I don't ever want to say anything that, causes someone not to consider Christ. Mm. And I, so I, I try to keep that in mind that the people that most often are opposing the ideas that I advocate for are people that are hurt and suffering and misguided. And if I can help bring them in a way towards truth and in a way that promotes human flourishing, I want to do that. And that's never through anger. Mm. Um, it's never through, you know, sort of polarizing them. It doesn't mean that the listener is always ready to hear what I have to say. Sure. Mm. And that's something else that yeah. I've learned is to pray for the listener. Yeah. yeah you were talking to us earlier about um, kind of your incident that happened at Yale and having that kind of moment with students. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Like what, what happened when those students were kind of protesting you in that moment? Sure. I, I went to the Yale Law School campus and the whole point of the event, I was invited by a group of students, the Federalist Society, and the point of the event was to demonstrate civility in the law and to bring in two ideological opponents who came together on a case to support free speech. So I argued a case called Uzabunum, mm. um, representing a Georgia college student whose speech was censored when he was trying to share the gospel. The event involved Monica Miller, who was at the American Humanist 
Baptist Association. Their motto is good without God. ADF's mission is to keep the door open for the gospel. So <laughs> there yeah. were some distinctions right, right. to be made. It's a little different. A little different. <laughs> yeah. um, but we had, we, you know, had a very cordial conversation and we're trying to demonstrate to the students that, you know, to have the justice system that we do, um, you have to be able to be in the same room mm -hmm. with the people that disagree with you and to debate ideas. And we all need to be able to stand against the government when they're trying to silence and punish and ruin people that disagrees with the government's view. Mm -hmm. And the students there, there are about 150, about 120 of them couldn't stand the thought of that and um, began to hurl insults and engage in physical intimidation and... Um, pounding on the walls, chanting, coming in and out of the room to the point where the, the police had to escort us out into a patrol car. And yeah. that was my first time in the backseat of one of those. Okay. Wow. So that was a little about that event. Yeah, I love and, it. And, and to think that those could be your future judges and lawyers. And I mean, it just... So it's a little Crazy. sober. And I think you talked about it in this moment that I loved and really kind of pulled on all of us when we listened to is how like in that moment where the students are protesting and they're you know, being angry and all that kind of stuff, you're still seeing like, you're still seeing them from what God sees them, right? right. You're still seeing that, yeah. that humanity, that, that what they've gone through in their, in their life. Yes. I, um, there, I have kids myself and, um, at those ages and, and as a mom to, you know, look around that room and see kids that are just visibly hurting. Yeah. They're mm -hmm. visibly hurting. And, um, just wondering what what's happened. Right. Mm -hmm. how, how did he what get to this place? To, yeah. How did this confusion happen? How can you have so much hatred? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and and to see them treat their fellow students, you know, the thirty or so that didn't share their views, to see how they were treated. Right. Um, it just it broke my heart, and mm -hmm. you know, some of them on continue to say some things on Twitter. Right. Um, and I continued to pray for them because yeah. I'm a, a, we're all human, and we and those hurts need to be healed, but we know who heals those hurts. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it's not by adopting some other identity, yeah. it's putting your identity in Jesus. Yeah, I think it's so important to remember that I, I am a self-proclaimed Twitter warrior, or at least I was <laughs> in undergrad before I stepped into stuff, but it's that's when everything's digital and you're going back and forth and you're defending an idea, I think that's, for me, does have been the parts that I've forgotten so easy, right? It's just a person on the other side. I'm trying to win in a fight. I'm trying to do all these different things. But our our message, we win by defending what we believe, but we def but how we defend it also matters with that. And I think that's been what's so powerful about learning from you and learning from your work is, yes, you can hold both. You can be kind. You can, um, you know, think about and have empathy for the same people that you're also defending a specific belief and a freedom, you know, against their ideology right. on that side of it. I think the tough part is we tend to, as believers to go one way or another. Yeah. So we're either going to compromise the truth, thinking that that's the kind kind response and not realizing that loving your neighbor is sharing sure. the truth and not sure. compromising it. Um, or we go to the other side and, you know, think that for some reason Jesus died for us, but not for them because we didn't, we're not quite so bad. And that's just, you know, we've got to come, I think it's a more mm. balanced approach that realizes he loves them as much as he loves us. Mm. Um, but I will say, you know, there are a few moments where there were a few snarky comments going through my head. Yeah, sure. <laughs> always, uh, always. 
Um, I bet yours were really good. You're, 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 you're uh, if you have to think of your feet in front of the Supreme Court, I bet you're a fantastic uh, on Twitter. Well, yeah, I had some good one-liners. Uh, yes. Oh, that's good. Hey, love this conversation. We're gonna we're gonna close it out with our fire round. Uh, we like to ask uh, two, three quick questions, uh, kind of about everything we've discussed, and just grab a few practical and applicable pieces of advice from uh, your experiences for our listeners today. So, Michael, why don't you start off with the first one? Yeah, so for our students who are, you know, post-graduation, um, and maybe they're kind of seeing, struggling to see their silver lining, right? They're on the job hunt. They're trying to figure out what's that next step now that they're done with college. What advice would you give them? God knows every page in your book. He has it written already. Be a part of his story. Don't be a part of yours. Wow, that's great. Second question, what is number one way that believers can combat disagreement in situations where faith is being challenged. Their faith is being challenged. Stand up and speak up. All right. Love it. Love it. And last one, you talked about this a lot, about this idea of patience. You know, as a society, as a, as a people group, we have to be patient on the things that we're working to advance. But then also personally in your own life, you got to be patient to see um, what God has for you. How do you cultivate patience in your life? Depending on... God and trusting for his provision, faithfulness does not look like what the world says it looks like. It looks like perseverance and trusting God with the outcome. In the law, all we can do is do the litigation. Right. It's, right. it's try to get the legislation yeah. passed, but ultimately that outcome is in God's hands. So we mm, just need to yeah. be faithful. Love it. Well, Kristen, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. What a privilege to uh, host you here and grateful for this conversation. Oh, thank you. It's been inspiring to be on your campus. Thank you. Well, if you want to stay up to date with Kristen, you can follow her on Twitter at KWagnerADF. Uh, is that right? KWagner at KWagner at ADF. Or yes. is it it's just KWagnerADF? Yes. All right. Okay. Good. Want to make sure we got that clear. Love it. So, uh, love it. Love it. And for more leadership content, you can check us out on Instagram at Kent underscore Ingle or at Dr. Michael Steiner or on Twitter, YouTube at Kent Ingle. You can also visit our website, KentIngle.com. Subscribe to our weekly newsletter for free leadership content straight to your inbox every single week. Thank you all so much for listening to Framework Leadership today. We'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. Take care, everybody.